Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast. I'm John Anthony Dunn, and today we're going to talk about gender in First Timothy. And joining me to do that, we have Grace Emmett, who is a PhD candidate in New Testament at King's College London. How's it going, Grace? Doing pretty well. Thanks, John. And we have Grace Sengalang Ng, who is a PhD student in education at Biola University. How's it going, Grace? It's going well. Thanks, John. And we have Dr. Logan Williams, who teaches at Durham University. How's it going, Logan? Uh, hey, John. Great to be here. And we have a very special guest. We have Dr. Cynthia Long Westfall, who is Associate Professor of New Testament at McMaster Divinity College in Hamilton, Ontario. And she is the author of Paul and Gender, Reclaiming the Apostles' Vision for Men and Women in Christ. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Westfall. Thank you so much for asking me. I'm really glad to be here. Well, we're happy to have you. So how about we begin with uh, kind of a broad question about your book and how you set this book up in terms of men and women and Paul's vision for them. Yes. And so I was um, asked to write on, actually, I was asked to write on, on uh, Paul and gender. Uh, I, was, I was commissioned to write this book. And so I, I kind of was taken aback and I said, oh, not Paul and women. Okay, you want Paul and gender. And so I'm, I kind of see things literally. So I said, okay, we're gonna, this is how we're going to do it. And not only did I, did I embrace what I was told, but I also thought this is how it should be because you can't talk about women and the passages about women without addressing men and the passages about men and then how they interrelate. But the other thing that was different about my book than, um, than books that had gone before that had, had addressed this issue was that the books had tended not only to focus just on women, but on maybe the three key passages or so, maybe four key passages. And um, I said, no, I think we actually ought to look at this from a broader viewpoint. So I was looking at it from from major topics, uh, biblical theology themes, and so I was, I covered culture, stereotypes, and then I looked at it from uh, creation, the fall, and eschatology. And the eschatology category was, was different. That was normally not covered. And I think that was one of the things that was a real addition. But I also looked at, you know, the body as male and female, as Paul talked about it. I looked at calling, and I looked at authority. And then taking all those things together, which I pulled in a number of passages, then I said, okay, now let's look at 1 Timothy 2 in the light of what we've covered on these topics and the approach. And so that's that made it a little different. And there are a few things that made it unique besides that, but that the whole approach was a bit of a different approach. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Westwood. That's certainly something I really appreciated appreciated about your book. It was one of the first things I read, actually, when I started my PhD, um, that you weren't just treating kind of gender synonymously with women, that it had that kind of more holistic approach. And as you say, that you were looking at um, kind of a broader range of passages rather than just those set texts that we're so used to kind of dealing with. As you say, you kind of set the book up so that you're doing this kind of more holistic stuff, and then it really hones in on 1 Timothy 2. And I was just, yeah, going over some of the literature on that before this call and reminded of what a, what a minefield that passage is, really. Um, I wonder if you would just tell us a bit, maybe about the letter to start with, and then we can kind of get into the complexities of that section in chapter two, particularly. When you talk about the context of, of 1 Timothy 2, um, first of all, one of the things I, um, I try to make clear is that it doesn't matter what your view on authorship is of 1 Timothy, in my opinion. Some scholars uh, do not believe that 1 Timothy is Pauline. And so I think a lot of times uh, authors just will not, scholars will just not deal with 1 Timothy when they're talking about what Paul uh, wrote about male and female in Christ. They'll just say, well, these are the pastoral epistles. The pastoral epistles are disputed. So we're not going to talk about that. Um, and I feel that that's a, a, a real mistake, at least when we're uh, in terms of talking to people who hold the Bible as authoritative, because now what do we do with this? How do we interpret it? So whether you think Paul wrote it or you think Paul didn't write it, my view is that First uh, Timothy presents itself as being written by Paul. And people say, oh, that's pseudonymous, though. That's, that's a fiction. And so, but in linguistics and, and, and in narratology as well, you're supposed to be taking a piece of literature and the way it presents itself. It says it's written by Timothy, uh, by, by Paul to Timothy. 
So in spite of what people's reservations should be, the first step should be to interpret that in the context in which it is asking you to understand it. That is, it's asking you to understand it as a Pauline letter. Therefore, I would say um, it places itself in the Pauline corpus. And so that becomes a context through which you understand it. And when you look at questions such as, is this a, a letter to an individual or is it a letter to a group? I say the same thing. It presents itself as a letter to an individual. This should be, it's either a fictive letter or it is a letter to the individual. But if it's a fictive letter, you still need to interpret it on its own terms. I hope that makes sense to you. So in that case, I try to speak to people who take different positions on the authorship of Paul and say, you know what? No, I hear you. But still, the way to interpret it is to interpret it within the Pauline, well, in the context of the Pauline corpus. I mean, it's written later anyway. And so the other Pauline texts have already been written. So you should re read it in the context of the Pauline corpus as something that comes later that's placed in a certain relationship from which you should understand it. And this becomes extremely important because... Um, if you just take the narrative at face value, you've got Paul writing to someone who's known him like besties, best friends for 15 years. And so when we get to something like 1 Timothy 2, he is not talking to Timothy like this is shared information. This is new information. And, and uh, this is something that he is writing to that, this current context, to someone who knows him very well. That is, is how we enter the passage. The other thing that I think we, that I would insist we enter the passage by is to read the letter itself in the context and, and with the purpose that it says it has. And that is in, in uh, 1 Timothy 1, he says that when I left for Macedonia, I asked you to stay behind in Ephesus so that you could instruct certain individuals not to spread wrong teaching. They shouldn't pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. Their teaching only causes useless guessing games instead of faithfulness to God's way and doing things. And this is what I would say the purpose of the letter and that you can trace throughout that Paul is attempting to equip Timothy to confront the problems uh, that are occurring uh, in Ephesus. You know, that's what I would say is the context coming into it. And other contexts, of course, are going to be the context of culture and the context of, of Ephesus in which, um, in which this letter places itself. It is interesting to see the ways that um, um, New Testament scholarship is often so uh, siphoned from the discipline of classics, uh, both its subject matter and its methodology. Uh, you'd imagine that classics being a very philological heavy discipline uh, in the Hellenistic, especially focusing on Hellenistic and Roman era texts that uh, maybe we can learn a lot from um, the uh, methodology that method, methods that are operative in classics. And I just see that this divide between reception and originality, original thinker, is more fluid in classics. For example, we don't have any writings from Socrates, but people talk about write books on Socrates' philosophy all the time, even though that all of our understanding of Socrates is received through Plato. Uh, and of course, we know that like. Plato is probably putting his spin on things, and this is debated. The reception of, of Socrates is quite, you know, variegated. But at the same time, there isn't this, like, hyper-skepticism where we say, well, we have no access to Socrates because we don't have his original writings, right? Like, the reception of an author is a part of the author's history, and it also tells us something about that author. Why is this author received in this way, right? Like, people aren't receiving Paul in order to justify worshipping animal goddesses, right? Like because Paul writes in a certain way, right? So the way that in which Paul is received, even if, even if Timothy is a pseudonymous letter, it doesn't mean that it doesn't tell us about the Pauline tradition and the school and the kind of thinking that Paul created that's downstream from him. Mm -hmm. And I just think that these, I'm like, I don't think it's, I don't think we necessarily have to say in order for us to learn about Paul through second, for, through first Timothy, it has to be Pauline or this, like, if it's not written by Paul, let's just throw it out. It doesn't tell us anything about Paul. Like, I just think that these binaries are actually reflective of this obsession into New Testament scholarship with origins and finding a pristine, untainted idea of an original religious moment, which is a very romantic, um, romanticist German idea. 
Uh, and I just think we need to break away from that. Once we break away from that kind of underlying ideology, we won't have this, you know, hyper obsession with weeding away what's extra in order to find the kind of original historical moment. And the other side of that is the tendency to interpret First Timothy and direct contradiction to the rest of the Pauline corpus. And so, and what's really funny about that is that uh, conservative scholars who actually want to maintain the authorship of Paul will will interpret this uh, book in contradiction to the previous writings of Paul. And that, that they might say, hey, there's no contradiction here. You know, women are saved, salvation by childbearing, but there's no contradiction with salvation through faith, you know, by uh, salvation by grace through faith. There's no contradiction here. I, you know, and then, and then of course, the, the description of how that works just simply shreds. It doesn't work, but it's not necessary to, to interpret that passage in contradiction. There are other options for interpretation that doesn't throw First Timothy in direct contradiction with the rest of the corpus. You want to look at those. And that's what I said. I said, you know what? If we interpret this within the uh, Pauline corpus and we, we take uh, what, it, what it says about itself and interpret it in terms of that lens at face value, and I'm not talking about naively, I'm just saying, you know, you're, you're being asked to interpret this text in a certain way. So give it a shot. Give it a roll and see if you can come up with a coherent interpretation. And um, and that I think I can do that. I, I can say I can say let's interpret this. It, let's, let's say that this isn't supposed to be a correction of Paul's previous teachings. Let's let's say that it's trying to be in harmony and consistent with what he's previously written. Now, how does it read? Yeah, that's really helpful for the literary context and the canonical context of First Timothy and appreciate you unpacking this because, of course, for, for our listeners, right, it's still in our Bibles. And however we've thought about the authorship of Paul, perhaps we haven't, but however we've thought about it, it's still in our Bibles and we still have to make sense of it, especially if we do regard the Bible to be authoritative. Yeah. But you had mentioned the cultural context of this letter. I wonder if you could say more about that, particularly its Ephesian context. Yes, that's really interesting, too how we have been given a whole lot of information about, about Ephesus and the nature of Ephesus from a number of places in the Bible. But uh, I could even just concentrate on what we get from Acts and what we know from history. And that is that this is a place that is, is, is full of magic and uh, magical practices. And so we have these stories of Paul ministering in Ephesus and uh, people being so impressed by an exorcism that they burned all their magical works, some astronomical amount of magical works. And these are the written works. And so I'm always uh, think about that. And I think about women's culture. And I think if the men are bringing their books, what are you going to do about what the women are doing in, in terms of like in the bedroom during childbirth? Because you know that's a place of deep magic in women's culture across the world. It's, 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 it's one of the biggest religious concerns there are. In Acts, we, th we see the centrality of Artemis in the city of Ephesus. She is the goddess of Ephesus. And uh, we see that, um, that a riot is provoked over the devotion to her. And so not only in Acts is there this devotion to Artemis, but we, we can look in histories of Ephesus and see the centrality. One of the things about Artemis is that she is the goddess of women from in all stages of life. And so that kind of gives her a double, a double freight uh, in, in stories about women and, and teachings about women in Ephesus and, and what we might imagine that we can be dealing with and the problems that we might encounter in the women's culture in Ephesus. Yeah, I think that background with Artemis is super helpful. One of the things I love about Artemis in Ephesus is how different the cult of Artemis seems to be compared to elsewhere in the Roman Empire. Like, for example, uh, in, in, in Roman context, she's Diana and she is a virgin goddess of the hunt, for example. But in Ephesus, we see her as perhaps a fertility deity or a mother deity. She appears with all these bulbous protrusions, which might be breasts or grapes or even bull testicles. These could be fertility images. What do you think about that? And how might this play into some of the things going on in 1 Timothy chapter 2? 
a lot of times there's a conflation of the two. And while whereas that's helpful to make a connection, um, Artemis in Ephesus uh, was really a goddess unto herself with her own traditions and mm. her own background, right back to that volcanic stone that was identified as a statue mm -hmm. of Artemis. But Aphrodite, more fertility. Um, Artemis, more motherhood and nurture. And again, all the stages of a woman's life, not just the, um, you know, the stuff uh, associated with fertility rituals. She's much bigger than that um, and much more about the aftermath than she is about the conception. <laughs> But th this is all very important because, of course, it's 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 important context for what we're going to talk about with First Timothy uh, two fifteen. Mm -hmm. When you address the women's culture, it's pretty hard to separate the women's culture from Artemis. And in terms of how this would influence, we see how the magical practices influenced uh, Paul's e uh, evangelism in Ephesus. To imagine that that's not playing a role in uh, the women's culture when uh, Timothy is supposed to be teaching in the middle of Ephesus is, is uh, implausible. What were, uh, before we actually look at uh, First Timothy 2, is there any way, do we have a map of uh, what the views were in uh, the Hellenistic Roman world about women being educators? Because in religious contexts, women are, are priestesses, uh, unlike uh, ancient Israel uh, and, and uh, Hellenistic and Roman. Uh, Judaism, uh, Hellenistic and Roman denoting time periods there. And yeah, I was just wondering if um, in religious contexts, you know, are there in, in other Greco-Roman cults, um, are there restrictions on women being um, educators? There are, um, and, and right now you've, you've got me a little bit um, unsure about my timing and place times, uh, I would say places, we've got some uh, women educators in Egypt. Um, some of them are, I believe, post this time period, but so close in time, I think we could still say it's applicable to say that women educators were not unheard of, but they were so rare, it's kind of like to say the exception proved the rule. One of the things about Ephesus that's interesting is that um, it is extremely multicultural. It's one of the crossroads of really of the known world. And, um, and it was huge. And so it was uh, many languages, um, many cultures all gathered at this place. And uh, one of the things that strikes me is that when we have um, uh, families of many cultures and many languages that often the women don't know the, the, the favorite language, they don't know the privileged language. And so um, Greek would be spoken in the city uh, would the women even understand uh, the services that were done in Greek, or would they need explanations? And so uh, I don't know how much you've had contact with immigrant families, but a lot of times the wives never end up speaking, for instance, in Canada, don't speak English a lot of times. They, fight, they, they struggle. There are exceptions. But uh, there would be all kinds of issues with learning in a Christian community that would be uh, exacerbated among the women um, with, by, by language problems. And that's just one issue that would be a problem. The other thing would be that women normally did not participate in public schooling. Women were educated at home. And, and uh, whether they read or not, you know, they might be taught to read. And so sometimes you hear, um, you know, people assert that, women, oh, yes, women were educated and literate, but we're looking at something like probably a second grade education in order for them to manage household accounts. And uh, as a, uh, more as a rule than giving them any kind of, uh, of training in classics or logic that uh, that advanced education would consist of for the men, the women just didn't have the same access. Uh, usually the women that became educators were the daughters of educators. Um, but I, I, I guess, um, of course, I haven't read every single uh, text in existence from the Greco-Roman world, but uh, in, I can't think of any off the top of my head that I've encountered um, that say, you know, women can't be educators because they're just ontologically stupid. Right, no. Uh, I'm sure those texts exist. 
uh, or at least I suspect that view is probably operative somewhere. Um, but the way I see it, the way at least I, from what I know of Greco-Roman culture, which is not everything, um, but I can kind of think that, well, it is it's just de facto the case that women didn't really get an education. But if they did, and they were articulate in things, then you know there's no ideological reason why they wouldn't be educators. It's just that de facto that didn't really happen. It's an issue of class, too. And so um, I, I think Kenneth Bailey writes about um, being um, actually growing up in, the, in this, the, the Middle East and um, then returning as an adult. And he talks about actually attempting to teach women and saying that some of the, pra- some of the gendered practices where the women are, are not given nutrition meaning even if they're pregnant, uh, they might be the last in line on the food chain and um, any number of things. And some of the some of the early treatment can result in them exhibiting, I would say, ADHD, having a, a low attention span. And so a lot of times gendered treatment can actually uh, inhibit a woman's ability to learn um, if there are gendered practices that um, that deprivilege her. Right? That, it, that, uh, and so, I mean, no, I, I say that um, in 1 Timothy 2.15, it says that um, a, a woman, a wife will be brought safely through giving birth to their children if they both continue in faith, love, and holiness together with self-control. And I'm talking about if a, if, a, um, if, if a husband and wife are working together in this way, then the women won't be beaten. They won't, be, uh, they won't suffer from malnutrition, which is so much the fate of women um, in this area now and the fate of women historically. Um, So thank you, Dr. Westfall, just for um, diving into the historical and cultural context of the passage. Um, I think it's just really um, helpful and important. And um, a question I also uh, had um, that you talk about in your book is, um, can you talk more about Paul as a Hellenistic Jew and his relationship um, to the Greco-Roman world as he lives and engages in it? Right. Well, you know that Paul was uh, born in Tarsus, and uh, so he actually uh, was a Hellenistic Jew, and he um, understood uh, how clearly understood how to interact with the multicultural experience of the Hellenistic world. Uh, One of the things that's interesting about Paul, though, is that he went to Palestine to finish his education. Um, in the rabbinics, in one of the rabbinic schools there. And he apparently integrated very well into Judea and into Jerusalem and became, came into leadership there, which I find really interesting. He seems to be a man who can cross cultures successfully. And so he navigated the cross of culture into Jerusalem and became a leader in Judea. <laughs> which is amazing in Jerusalem um, and uh, among the Pharisees, even though we, you know, we see indications that there's a real division between um, the Hellenists in Jerusalem and the Judeans, uh, the, the, what they say, the Jews, the, the people that spoke um, Aramaic. So Paul was able to uh, do both worlds. And so I think that equipped him, um, but the Hellenistic, experience equipped him for his mission later in life where he was able to cross into cultures and and found um, indigenous churches so to speak churches that were gentile churches that reflected the the local culture of the area of the gentiles and so he's an amazing person who who combines uh, that the hellenism the uh, the jewish hellenism and the judean (laughs) Uh, Jewishness and was able to successfully navigate both places. If we press into 2.15 a bit more, um, tell us about some of the kind of thorny translation and interpretive issues that occupy that, that come with that verse. Well, it's almost like you have to run into it, but but let me go ahead. I'm reading the Common English Bible, which is why it's going to uh, it's going to reflect um, it's going to reflect actually my beliefs about it, and that's to say. Uh, it's uh, starting in 11, it says a wife should learn quietly with complete submission 
I don't allow a wife to teach or control her husband. Instead, she should be a quiet listener. Adam wasn't formed first, then Eve. Adam wasn't deceived, but rather his wife became the one who stepped over the line because she was completely deceived. But a wife will be brought safely through giving birth to their children if they both continue in faith, love, and holiness together with self-control. And so there's a number of interpretive choices coming into this passage. Um, Before verse 11, it talks about instructions to women, and it mostly um, addresses uh, luxurious clothing, inappropriate luxurious clothing after addressing men. First it addresses men, then it addresses women, and then it goes to the singular of, um, in the Greek, it's a woman and a man, but why does it change from the plural to the singular, and then it uh, and then it goes straight into Genesis two, and it's not a teaching per se, but a very very brief summary of the of the narrative of Genesis two flows into Genesis three, where it talks about um, how she uh, how she was deceived and stepped over the line. Now we we were really careful with that translation because people usually say, yeah, she sinned first. No, that's not what it says, actually. It says she became one who was a transgressor. And it's such crazy language. I look at it and I look at the other Pauline teaching where it says definitely Adam sinned. Adam was the first sinner and death entered the world through Adam. And people people read this in contradiction and say, Eve sinned first, this is all her fault. And you actually see any number of people writing as saying she did this to us. I'm like, no, that's not what Paul says. That is going beyond the text. In fact, it throws the text into contradiction. And in the Greek, it's clear that's not what he's saying. He's saying something different. Anyway, the point here being the reason I take this as a wife and husband, and that was the way it was translated in the Common English Bible, is because that's what the passage is talking about. The passage goes to the singular, which can always be a wife and husband in the singular. And um, and then it talks about the marriage passage, the conventional marriage passage. Then it talks about... Um, the fall, and then t- then gets to the point. The past, the, the this is crazy to me. I mean, when I realized it, the prominence in the passage is in fact on on First Timothy two fifteen. Like this is what we're getting to. This is what we're getting to. This is about a wife being brought safely through giving birth. Well, that is the effect of the fall on women. That's one of the primary effects of the fall on women is on childbirth. Maternal mortality is a leading cause of death for women historically. And even now, maternal mortality is one in seven uh, births, or seven to nine births in some of the worst points. At least it was at the time I looked at it. I hope it's gotten better. (laughs) But that's that's huge. Just think one in seven births, a woman dies. And and when you give that, uh, when you understand that there could be multiple childbirths, that the chance of your number coming up and giving birth is very, very high. And so this is a huge thing in women's religion. How do you deal with the fact that every time you give birth, this is a, a threat to your life? Um, where do you go and what do you do? Mm-hmm. And so this is a, and, and we're in Ephesus, this is placed in Ephesus. You'd go to Artemis. Mm-hmm. When you were threatened, when you were threatened for your life, you have, there have been practices handed down from mother to daughter of, of what you do to get through this thing safely. Artemis will see you through. Mm-hmm. This, is all, um, um, uh, this is all established. And so how hard that must have been to get to for someone like Timothy staying mm-hmm. in there. How can you get to the women's culture? Mm-hmm. How can you get to this? And we see in the rest of the text that there is, in fact, stuff going on about marriage and sex and giving and giving birth. It comes up all mm-hmm. through. Mm-hmm. And so you, you look at this, if you look at this as an issue about how to make it safely through mm-hmm. childbirth, which this is really what the language is. This is yeah. what it, where it would lend you to go. This mm-hmm. is about maternal mortality. This is addressing the effects of the fall. He's brought you there by tracing you through the through creation and then through the fall now we're talking about the effects and this is what he wants to address mm-hmm. and um and and the, the the language is everyone always has said i don't know what this is because it says 
it says she will be brought safely uh, through giving birth if they mm-hmm. and go, who's they? And so a lot of, of what it seems to have been most popular to say they is the women of the, are the women of Ephesus. And I say, well, we're all screwed then. You know, because, I'm sorry. <laughs> we have no hope you know, <laughs> because, because um, the women of Ephesus are not showing themselves to be in a good place here. Mm-hmm. So if, if the women's, if the woman being actually, if her being actually saved spiritually depends on the whole uh, culture of the women of Ephesus, we're in trouble. If her making it through childbirth safely depends on all of them, then there really isn't any hope. Every all the women in Ephesus have to um, what continue in faith, love, holiness together with self control. Really. But that's not the most natural way to take the passage. And if you do see that the most natural way to understand the passage is that when it goes to the singular and it goes to the home environment and in the idea of one person, a woman is learning, that's home. I already made this point. It's a homeschooling situation um, is, is that and, and she's learning from whom? Her husband. That is the natural instructor in that situation. And so he's saying, he's, he's saying, okay, here's how we're going to deal with a problem. We're going to have the wives are going to be instructed by their husbands, which is going through the normal cultural um, channels. And, um, and, and she's, I'm not going to allow a reversal on this thing right now, because here's the thing, you know, and, and, and he, I'm saying he's addressing, he's, he's honing in on a problem here, which he says is elsewhere, mm-hmm. that they have some interference in the women's culture, and he's trying to address it right up front. And then he says, he says, a woman, here's how a woman makes it safely through childbirth. Mm-hmm. She and her husband continue in faith, love, holiness together with self-control. Now that self-control word, that's that's translated differently because they thought it was always kind of like women should be well-behaved. No, it's self-control. And this makes all kinds of sense um, in the context of maternal mortality, because one of the reasons women die, die and have died is because of their treatment by their husband. Um, they get beaten, they get neglected, they get, they get, at the end of the food chain. And uh, so in Africa, when maternal mortality is being addressed, the first thing they, the first thing on the list is address the husbands. Mm -hmm. This is how we help women to make it. Now, Paul goes beyond that. And he he is talking about, you know, faith and love and holiness and self-control. If the two of them are practicing this, then a woman's going to be brought safely. What's the objection? Really? You think she's going to be brought safely um, because women do die. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know how many women die when all these, ch- yeah. all these boxes are checked. It's going to greatly reduce maternal mortality. Mm-hmm. And just remember in James, same language is used where um, it says, if a, if a person is sick, call for the elders of the church and to anoint them and pray for them. And if they have sins, they'll be forgiven them and they will be healed. Mm-hmm. You know what? I bet you they died sometimes too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, it's the same exact scenario. Mm-hmm. But I think in both of them there's this there's this sense in the passage that the, the that there is a spiritual issue and there is a physical issue. And I think that Paul is looking at the danger of a woman going through childbirth and actually turning to Artemis in that process instead of the spirit instead of spiritually um actually uh, being united with her husband in Christ. Um, it's like what the worst thing you could possibly think was for her to be, to die right in the middle of a, of a, a ritual mm-hmm. that, uh, that is part of the worship of Artemis. Mm-hmm. That is total dis- loss and total destruction, but put her and her husband in this position of faith and it will mitigate, it will mitigate it. God hears our prayers and furthermore, sometimes people die, but mm-hmm. dying in, in faith in Christ, that's life. According mm-hmm. to Paul, that's mm-hmm. life. If you look at how he looked at his own death, and um, he, he, he continually professed this faith that, you know, God's going to rescue me. And, um, but in the end, it's like he, he is going to die. And the, they both are true. 
Uh, on this point about the deliverance might not always uh, take place. Um, what about the possibility at the beginning of chapter three, verse one, where it says, here's a trustworthy saying is actually the conclusion of chapter two, or, or, or it should be the conclusion of that discourse such that um, it, what, what Paul would be saying that is that this is a proverbial idea, right? This idea that a woman will be brought safely through childbearing. It's a trustworthy saying in the sense of uh, if a couple, like you're saying, uh, has that kind of faith, love, holiness, and, and self control that this this is proverbially um true right not always true it's not a promise but proverbially true which which is how i would take it as a as a proverbial truth um just just in that sense but it goes it goes a bit beyond a proverbial truth i wouldn't i'm not saying i'm taking it uh the text that way i'm just saying that would be that would work um, except that I do think it's saying a little bit more in terms of um, at, in this point of, of being uh, in uh, facing the fear of death, that there was something bigger than a proverb uh, when the two, when a husband and wife are exercising faith, love and holiness with self-control together, that um, yes, all things being equal, She's going. It's it's going to be a a situation that's going to maximize her survival. But beyond that, it's also to say that life is in Christ. This is the road of life, and and I think that's maybe a little bigger than a proverb. But um, yeah, this is this saying is reliable. Well, if I think we started seeing uh, these this said in this way, um, I would. Definitely reconsider thinking that 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 saying would go with that. I'm I at this time take it as cataphoric, and I think it does um, work well with what comes after it. And I'm not sure that when Paul is talking about these things, that he's talking about what's being widely addressed in practice. One of the things I want to point out here, uh, just in in view of that. Um, a lot of times you hear people say, well, um, women don't like what God says uh, about them, or feminists don't like it, or egalitarians don't like it, because what does God say? God says, I don't allow women to teach or, ex- or, or control her husband. <laughs> and they will say, have, a, uh, have authority uh, over her husband. That's not really what the word means. Um, but, and, the, and, and that's the first thing you stop, go stop there. That's untrue. Um, This is Paul speaking. Paul was speaking to Timothy, and Paul was saying, I, Paul, am not allowing women to teach or or to um, control their husband. And um, and he was always, we can see in the Corinthian correspondence how careful he was to say, okay, this is me. Okay, this is not me. This This is the Lord. And he differentiated it. Here he's differentiating that this is what he's doing. And if we interpret that in terms of his past letters, he's, he's very careful to say, he's not saying this is the practice in all the churches, he's saying this is what I'm doing, or this is my call. And it makes a huge difference in how you read the passage. And it's kind of like a prescription uh, 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 for, for a certain situation. And so it's like that comment, what is it? I think it's First Corinthians 7, where he says, mm-hmm. um, uh, from me, not the Lord, and then the commands from the Lord, not from me, etc. Addressing relationships between husbands and wives and women and men, and whether you stay single or don't, you know. And so it's 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 on much of the same matter. So here again, we've got this this issue between men and women, and he's saying, okay, this is what I'm doing. And it's not saying God has commanded this or or anything like that. It's it's uh, clearly he's trying to address either his decision or his practice. And it's up, you know. T- Timothy would know uh, what what this was about. But what's interesting about this is that he's saying this to someone who's know, knowing him for fifteen years, and he goes, "Okay, this is what I'm doing." And this would tend to say it's not necessarily what he said and done in the past. Now he's informing him of either his current analysis of the situation or a change in his practice. So I guess it's actually very similar to um, the observation that's made by many, at least in the past um, uh, few years, uh, that Paul asks Gentiles to Judaize uh, in Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8. Uh, he says, uh, no, you have to, you know, um, you have to eat 
uh, like uh, it. Let's assume for the moment that those are dealing with Jew-Gentile relations. So I know there's debate, but let's assume for the moment that they that that's what they're dealing with. He's asking Gentiles to adopt Jewish food practices um, of not eating meat sacrificed to idols uh, in First Corinthians eight and Romans fourteen. So a lot of people point this out as like, ah, well, in Galatians, Paul says, "Don't Judaize," but of course, we know he does this in First Corinthians and Romans. Well, yeah, that's true on a superficial level, but what are the differences in circumstances, right? In First Corinthians and Romans, it's about Judaizing for the sake of loving your neighbor and not making them stumble so that it destroys their faith. Right. Whereas in Galatians, they're being taught, you know, in order to express your faith in Christ, you must express it within this particular cultural frame, within this particular uh, nomistic frame. Um, and uh, if that's why you're obeying the Torah, then Paul says, absolutely not. That is not a good reason to obey. That's not a good reason to Judaize. <laughs> uh, but there are actually good reasons. In that case, if that's what you're thinking, you know, that's, it's, it's, it's really, really te- terrible. Should, should not be done. Yes. And so, Paul, this is one of my arguments. I don't know actually how much, to what extent I make it here. I do make this in a new chapter I've written on um, Galatians 3.28, is that Paul actually protects uh, both Jews and Gentiles to say, say uh, he says to Gentiles, you do not, you do not convert to Judaism. Uh, you stay Gentiles. But he also, he d- doesn't tell Jews to become Gentiles, which is, um, I think there's a false negative, a fallacy of a false negative that they think if, if Paul's telling uh, Gentiles not to become Jews, he must be telling Jews they have to become Gentiles. Both are wrong. He maintains the integrity of the distinctions and the differences between Jews and Gentiles. And, um, and uh, that's extremely important. And, and so when it says there's, there's no Jew uh, nor Greek, people, people say, okay, he's eradicating differences. And I said, no, we're saying that membership in the body of Christ uh, means that there's no distinction in terms of, the, of, of how you function as a member in the body. But right within the context, he's, project, he's protecting um, Jews to remain Jews and Gentiles to remain Gentiles and women to remain women and men to remain men. He's, he's, he's saying there are distinctions, there are differences. That's just not how you operate when you are meeting together as a body. You are all um, heirs. You're all baptized into one body. You all are, have the same status and calling. So because actually there's no Jew and Greek, Jews may actually continue to keep the Torah faithfully and in a way that's totally consistent with their trust in the Messiah. Absolutely clear um, from Acts uh, that you you have to read it that way. You even have Paul. <laughs> that that strange thing you have you have to deal with the fact if you think that 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 wasn't the case. What was Paul doing in the temple <laughs> and participating in a sacrificial ceremony when he got arrested? Yes. And all that right up to right, right that whole covering with Acts shows that 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 the practice of the Torah was going on among the Jews who were believing in Christ. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. I wonder if I can sort of rewind us back to two twelve and think a little bit about what the prohibition is in there. You've mentioned already there's kind of difficulties around how to translate um, that text. Uh, could you just say a bit more about that? And I guess particularly sort of how do we read that now as well? So kind of moving from initial context. Yeah, and I go I go back and forth on certain aspects of this, meaning I can hold some things in tension and say it could be this, it could be this. But um, but he Paul is a uh, is it, when he says a woman should learn quietly with complete uh, submission. This is the only command in the passage is that a woman should learn. We talked a little bit earlier about did women learn, did women become educators, and I tried to make the case that most women needed the opportunity to learn in order to function well and in order to use their gifts. And particularly uh, if, if what we're saying, what I'm saying is going on in Ephesus is there's an issue with the women's culture, probably you know myths and genealogies. Um, Old wives' tales. Later on, it says, and people want, don't want to translate it that way. And I'm, I'm saying, do translate it that way. That indicates that women are the carriers of the culture, and they're passing on narratives that are that are very powerful. And so uh, he's saying, okay, we want to address this thing, go, these things that are going on in the women's culture. So I want the women to be learning, and um, with and and this is a positive. I want women to learn. 
that is a positive thing to have women have an education so that they can be full participants and, and they have a chance to address some of these issues instead of just letting them go. Um, but he says, I don't, I don't want that reverse now. Now, again, why wouldn't he say that? I, uh, and it's interesting because he says, to teach, I don't allow a woman nor to authentic um, a man. And so uh, that fronting of teaching is, and, and that separation from authentic actually le- leaves a number of things up in the air. I think that it's highly possible that he's saying under the circumstances with these problems, let's have a moratorium. And I, I certainly don't want them to be doing this thing to their husbands. And, um, and so what is it that they're doing? What could we be talking about? And there's all kinds of um, ideas about what this word can entail. Okay, so I've done an extensive uh, study of this word, and it's never, ever, ever, ever used for ministry. Not once in the whole history <laughs> of the use of the word in natural language is this used for ministry. Is, is it, and so someone says, but it's not a pejorative word because sometimes God says it. And I said, yes, yes, God does it. And he does it to the wicked in Sodom and Gomorrah. So even when God does it uh, to a person, you, you just don't want to be that person. You end up destroyed or, you know, killed or damned or something. And so, so even though God doing it must be good. Okay. But not good if you're Sodom and Gomorrah you know, <laughs> because you get destroyed. And so when this word is, is done, it done directly, the direct object is a person or even a sentient being um, it's destructive. It's damaging. It's, it's most of the time like lethal force and not always lethal force, but domination control lethal force. It makes the person do something they don't want to do. Sometimes you have to do that, right? Sometimes you just have to, you know, that's what they talk about. Sometimes you just have to authentic people. (laughs) I just had to do it. Uh, But, but in general, it's like, okay, yeah, yeah, you can allow for that and say no, but, but yeah, the idea of usurping and all these kinds of things are in there. But a lot of that, um, the usurping a lot of times comes from possessions and things, but when it's done to a person, that's force, that's negative, that's destructive force. And so um, something, so this is uh, describing prohibiting women from doing something destructive to their husband. Now I think if women were dominating their husbands, that would be considered destructive within the culture. That might be bad enough, but what's the stuff about, um, about there, there's some kind of hints about withholding sex, <laughs> not having children, refusing to have children, all kinds of things that maybe could be understood in this context that 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 women were dominating, controlling over a, over their husbands over something. He's just, you know, I'm, that's that's over. You know, I, I'm not allowing that. And uh, when we don't want to do a false negative fallacy there and say that means men are supposed to do that, um, it, uh, it never says men are to do this word anywhere. In fact, Chrysostom actually has this intertextuality with this passage. And he goes, just because your women are submissive to you, hypotasso, that doesn't mean you authentic them. I'm actually using I'm actually using the infinitive. That wasn't that wasn't the one, the the tense, but you get the idea. I think it just, I just like to use that to get it across. You don't do this to your wives, and and so you know, and that that kind of when people face that, they say, well, this is an outlier. Well, no, it's not an outlier. <laughs> it's something that's directly related to this passage. Nobody's supposed to be doing this to each other, and particularly in a ministry situation, which is what people say that this is about a ministry in the church. And I say, okay, no, this, this word has nothing to do with ministry in the church, nor does giving birth have anything to do with ministry in the church. This passage is going on about something quite different. And so uh, when it says that this is about a worship service, that is a mislabel. There are no indications this is about a worship service. There are actually every, every kind of indication saying differently. Uh, yeah, I, so I just did a search um, uh, briefly for um, uh, Authenteo. Uh, and I see, uh, this is not exhaustive, but I just think it's interestingly indicative that in Wisdom 12.6, often Teo is used uh, for parents to murder uh, helpless people. 
Um, well, and it, of course, yeah. yeah, it is it is possible that, you know, like the same word that's used for murder is the same word that's used for ministry, like language is a flexible thing. But it is curious, isn't it? <laughs> well, there's a passage in yeah. which it's so funny that that people who want to say this is exercise authority, where they, they say, here, look at this passage. And this is a this is we think a translation of a very old passage. And this guy murders his parents, and they're shouting, "You murdered your parents! You murderer! You authentic! You're awful!" And they say, "See, authentic doesn't mean murder." And you're going, "What text is this?" <laughs> well, it doesn't mean murder, but it's associated with what happens when you murder someone. You, yeah. you, you uh, and I would say, yeah, the idea of taking ta- the idea of taking control of their life, taking their life from them. Um, is very much in there. There's, there's a, my favorite passage was, I can't remember who this was. One of the well-known um, bishops in one of the councils got up and said, I didn't become a bishop by choice. I was a thintained. A whole bunch of monks broke down my door and grabbed me and pulled me out of my cell and forced me. And that was a thintaining. That's the only, the closest to ministry. Now there are some passages that say, um, I've got a court case I want you to um, to settle. So I want you to totally authenticate this matter. Well, that's different, you know, to what, to, yeah, I really want you to dominate. This is like, um, you know, dominating a, is dominating a football game versus dominating a person by, you know, improper behavior uh, on the field, right? We all know the kinds of things people do or have done before they start throwing more flags, but. <laughs> uh- so I have a grammatical question, uh, and I'm not sure where you land on this, uh, and I, I'm not really sure what necessarily the implications uh, are of this. Uh, I have some thoughts, but um, in First Timothy two, uh, what we see what we see in First Timothy is we see like a kind of subject matter being introduced, and then there's kind of like a riffing on it, and then like a new subject, and then a kind of a riffing on it, right? Um, so like, don't pay attention to old wives' tales, blah 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 blah, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so he kind of just like introduces something and then kind of develops it. Um, and what I find interesting about interpretations of these passages um, is that um, there's this kind of um, introduction of this topic. Um, let a woman learn um, uh, quietly uh, in all with the hupatase or something mm-hmm. uh, in every hupatase. Yeah, in every submission, yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, it's a hupatage here, actually. Passe, uh, yeah, in passe hupatage. Um, and, and then, like, um, in most interpretations, he, Paul just kind of trails off and just like drops the subject, right? Um, so he's like, yeah, let a woman learn anyways, and then moves on. Well, um, but what, I, what, I, what, what, what would you understand? I mean, this is the thing yeah. um, that that's the issue is let her learn, but I don't let her to te- um, teach or, and we said control, I would say dominate. But again, I mean, exactly what's going on here is hard to determine. I think dominate would be would be safe. And then we've, we've got instead she should be a quiet listener. Meaning that let's correct this problem now because uh, mm-hmm. and then we've got just an uh, a gar, which people make a lot of. So what's the logical relationship? You say it's riffing, but you know there's some relationship, some support between and they they act like these are a series of propositions. It's not. It's a narrative. Um, yes. Just yeah. a brief summary. What's the relationship between that brief summary and the the um, him saying he doesn't permit women to do this kind of thing, but wants them to be learning? And again, I would say that that's a temporary. We got to correct this false teaching. Here's the here here's you know here's our emergency measures. And so I would say there I would take it as a general prohibition to teach. And it shouldn't be taken as a contradiction to places where it's, I, he doesn't want the women, the older women to teach the younger women. Not now, not here. He, uh, elsewhere he does. But right now things are out of order. So he's saying right now, you know, I'm going, okay, no more teaching. Um, let's just get everything. Let's just get everything lined up and, and uh, let's get women taught. Let's bring them up to speed. And she should right for this time. She should listen to this. Listen to this narrative. <laughs> so, so I've always wondered if I've always wondered if actually the gar in two in two is it two thirteen, um, yeah, for Adam is made first, then um, then Eve, uh-huh. um, actually is logically subordinate to verse eleven, uh, and not verse twelve. So let a woman learn, uh, oh. and then there's this discussion of the deception of the woman, right? That right. 
um, that there, there's a capacity for people, uh, or in this story, there's a capacity for a woman to be uh, deceived, and that's like a cognitive thing, right? So you have like a cognitive statement about learning in, in verse 11, you have a cognitive statement in uh, 13 and 14, uh, which is, you know, one sentence, um, uh, with a gar. And I've, I've wondered if you've ever thought about the possibility that the gar actually is supporting verse 11 and not verse 12. But I would take them together. And so, yeah. yes, I mean, fine. But but uh, it, is, is this the content that we're focusing on? And so um, uh, there, there actually is a, um, um, a Gnostic myth where the creation, all these things are reversed and, and another story is told, another narrative is told. And uh, the thing is this, is to say, and I believe it is, it is that the myth did uh, get written down in Ephesus. Well, the Gnostic tradition is based on an oral tradition as well. And so I'm thinking that some early form of that reversal of, of Genesis was most probable and, and actually not inconceivable in the Genesis culture among women. And again, mixed up with, a, with a, what I've said is likely to be um, a, a continuity in the worship of Artemis and the other traditions of Ephesus there. And they've reversed it. And he's saying, okay, narrative, here's the narrative. And, but, but were they using the narrative to address the reversal of narrative or a change in the narrative to address and deal with childbirth? The idea that, wait a minute, you know, we have this um, pain in childbearing and maternal mortality. And so here's some teaching that's going to deal with that. I know, don't have sex with your husband. That'll deal with it. That's a great solution. <laughs> and you know, Paul would not be amused at that one. He's like, if you're married, you know, have sex as often as possible is basically what he says in uh, 1 Corinthians 7. He says, this is not an option for a married couple to deprive each other. I said, they came up with a really great solution to Genesis 3. Of course, it makes all kinds of sense to me, but uh, it's like, that may, why not? You know, they say, no, 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 that's not what, that's not what this is about. And this isn't what we're teaching. So uh, later on, he's going to tell, he's going to address a, a, a specific problem with widows, which I don't think is unrelated to this passage. He, passage and he's saying, okay, you know what? If you're not 60, get married <laughs> and have children, okay? And everyone says, but that contradicts 1 Corinthians 7. He's like, well, not really, because this is kind of a different situation that he, he's dealing with people that, that apparently are lusting and all these kinds of things, all kinds of stuff is going on to say, you know, these circumstances, I can call it. It's really not a contradiction to what he teaches earlier, but it's a specific problem that he's addressing. And so at any rate, I think when he gets into this, yes, I mean, it's part of the content of what they should be learning. I think it's part of the correction. I think the issue of deception uh, could be analogous to um, not women everywhere, always just here and now. We're really having a problem with women and the women's culture and a deception issue. He says so in Second Timothy. He says that women are being preyed upon and deceived by false teachers, which I take this goes with this. And so this isn't about women just being deceived uh, more than anybody else, but this is very analogous to what we're dealing with right now. So let's straighten this one out. I like how you mentioned um, how Paul like understands the specific situation and is speaking into that specific culture um, and how he doesn't um, eradicate the cultural differences or the gender differences, um, but he sees um, the unity even in the differences. So um, I wanted to ask how um, that relates to the current conversations on gender and race. Roles, uh, gender roles. Um, if we want to talk about those for a minute, I'm keeping in the keeping kind of in the heart of of the kinds of things that that Paul seems to be addressing. Um, is there does this teach that um, there are specific roles for women and roles for men? One of the things I always want to distinguish between, and this is this is addressing this is addressing the women's culture in the home. It really does seem to be that the false teaching and the old wives' tales are something that are going on in the domestic sphere um, and not necessarily, say, in the home churches that, uh, and the services that are being taught. I mean, I think that's one of the problems about it is it was difficult. Timothy couldn't get at it. And so, um, so he's working through conventional um, gender um, 
gender roles here that how it works in the home and he does that that doesn't mean uh i don't i don't believe in this case this isn't teaching that anything about how males and females are supposed to like giving rules for how things are supposed to relate or uh, only men can teach women women can never uh, teach their husbands like i would never i couldn't you couldn't use this about about teaching in a congregation i don't think you can use it about teaching between a husband or a woman either this is about who has the information and who who has the confusion and it was it's easily identified so there are other passages like ephesians 5 that um do seem to differentiate to people uh, between the relationship between a husband and wife. And since it says something like a, a man's the head and, um, and a woman's the body. And so they think that that means that there's a difference in um, actual things that one does. When actually you read the passage, it's going to tell you something quite different. And uh, what it is, is, is that Paul just starts playing with the language of head and body, and he just turns the whole passage on his head. Now, I have thoughts about what it means that uh, man is the head, and I I understand within the Greek language and within kinship language that head means source of life. It's going to be your parents, your ancestors, sometimes your family as a whole. This is like where you draw your life and your identity from. And so he's looking at the creation passage and saying, oh, look, for crying out loud, I was reading the creation passage the other day in the Septuagint, and, and the headship language in terms of, it, it was really unmistakable to me is, is that when, um, when in, in the consequences of the fall, the relationship of both Eve and Adam to the, the source of their, of their life is 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 uh, impacted that is women become uh, dominated or under the authority uh, and ruled and men their relationship to the ground from which they were taken is affected so in each case is the uh, the, the thing from which they are t- taken is like a head it's kind of weird to say the d- dirt is the man's head <laughs> but but in this case it is and and uh, and so at any rate you know he's looking at the creation passage and saying okay what does it mean that women are taken from men and I think he is looking at some of the the rhythms of life and how life goes and saying yeah that relationship between male and female creates a certain um, it 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 actually lends to a power differential but I don't think that's what he's talking about I don't think he's talking about a power relationship he's talking about how women do draw life from men. They do creationally. Uh, but interestingly enough, I don't think he sees that as, per, as an obligation per se, unless, you know, they actually are being, you know, they're, they're getting sustenance and protection from that relationship, like a patron-client relationship. And he says, okay, you're in a patron-client relationship. You know, that you, you, people submit in patron-client relationships where they receive a benefit from somebody else, they pay it back with submission. And he talks about it with that kind of language. Then he turns to the man and he says, okay, if you're, you're the head, now she's the body. All right, let's, let's break that one out. And he has some fun with it where he, he actually reverses everything to the point where he has the man doing women's work for his own body. You know, okay, if you, what do you do for your body? You, you um, well, first he talks about Jesus and and what he does for the church. Gives her baths, makes her clothes, does the ironing, removes the spots, and then he turns to you and says, "What do you do for your body? Oh, you take care of it, you nurture it, you feed it, you know." And saying and and um, and I and I also you have to say if he's the head and she's the body, and he's saying treat her like a male body. Who's who's got the genitals now? Who's the man? And so, and then he, he ends up, you know, doing all that, this, this, this working around and saying, basically, it's like loving your neighbor as yourself. You're loving your wife as yourself, or you're, you're the man. Well, love her like she's the man. And, <laughs> and it's very much embedded in all this other teaching of Jesus and the teaching of Paul about the humility and considering one another better than yourself. And, um, there's so much to say on this. I think I'll stop with that. But by, by the time you go through Ephesians 5 and you really understand it in terms of the gender roles of the culture, he has actually flipped everything and reversed everything. And I talk about that in gender roles in my chapter 
where um, a lot of times people don't recognize that um, Paul ascribes women's roles to men or to leadership, and he ascribes men's roles to all Christians. And then some of the great stories about how women took those male roles literally and seriously say, okay, I'm a warrior. Great. You know, and um, I had a dream and I was a man and I was stripped naked. And you're going, okay, wait a minute. Yeah. <laughs> I was a gladiator and I, you know, and, and this was a woman about getting ready to, and these were immensely popular in the early church. And so I think that when we fail to see that the language of the early church was actually teaching women to think like men, where, where it actually, you know, it actually helped you in your spiritual formation and teaching men to think like women where it helped them in their spiritual formation. Think about a mother nursing her child, you know, that's how a leader is. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Westfall. This has been such a wonderful conversation. It's been great to walk through the text with you and to discuss various exegetical issues, lexical issues, and even practical ones as we think about how this applies to the church today. So this has been just really helpful. Thank you for teaching us. Well, thank you again for having me. And this was a very intelligent conversation. Um, I obviously didn't have any idea what you were going to say. And and, uh, yes, it was unique and different. So thank you for that. It was fun. Got me thinking. If you'd like more engagement of Theology, Culture, and Discipleship from The Two Cities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. If you like the content that we put out here on The Two Cities Podcast, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts.